9 and 10 is what we're going to be in today, 1 Peter chapter 2. If you have a Bible, you can turn there if you'd like to. Uh, we will continue to reference that verse, though. Uh, and at the end of today, we're going to recite it together as a way to close our time. Um, how many of you, and I may be kind of dating myself here, but how many of you are familiar with the, uh, the Bourne movies? You remember those? Yeah? Okay, Jason Bourne, um, American superhero. Thank you so much. Man, he saw me look in the closet and he knew exactly what I was looking for. Appreciate that. What service? Um, one of the things that makes this movie appealing, uh, I think particularly for God, for men, uh, but, but for all of us as Americans, if you are living here, um, is kind of the unrealistic American value that this one guy can kind of defeat everybody by himself. We love that, right? We love that in our movies. Uh, Jason Bourne is just another version of, if you remember Jack Bauer, uh, same thing, who is just another version of any of the characters Chuck Norris has ever played. <laughs> same thing, right? Or Rambo or Luke Skywalker or Neo, the list could go on forever. Maybe the most recent version of this, I got into this show a little bit, is Jack Reacher. Uh, if you've been watching the Reacher series, we eat this, what is pretty much nonsense, up. We love it, right? There's this one hero. He can defeat all the powers of evil. He can do it all by himself. Very American, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of nonsense. Uh, it's like we all know it's not really true. But we are willing to pay a lot of money to stream and go to the movies and suspend reality for a little bit uh, because we love this stuff. And I love this stuff. I, I, I love it. Um, but one of the things that makes the Bourne movies so kind of um, uh, interesting, so successful, I think, is the aspect of the storyline. If you're familiar with the storyline of those movies, that he is trying to figure out who he is. Uh, this is a big, major theme in that series of movies. And if you think about it, even all the way down to like Disney princess movies, it's the theme behind a lot of movies that we love. Who am I down at the bottom uh, of my life? And so uh, if you're like, hey, I haven't seen the Bourne movies yet, don't ruin it. They came out in 2002, so like you've had time uh, to watch them. Um, there is a statute of limitations on sermon illustrations when it comes to movies, and that's long past. So Sorry. One of the main themes, though, in the movie is that the main character, Jason Bourne, he's trying to figure out who he is, right? Um, he's basically had his memory wiped, like Men in Black style, I guess, where they did the thing with the flashlight thing. So he doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know where he came from. And this is a major plot line. And I think the reason we're so attracted to movies like that, besides the cool action scenes, is that uh, most uh, of us struggle with this question on a fairly consistent basis in one form or another. Uh, researchers have recently come out, kind of recently, maybe in the last decade or so, and there was some talk about how people aren't just dealing with like a midlife crisis now, but they're dealing with a quarter-life crisis, okay? And so instead of the midlife crisis, which the caricature is like a 45, 50-year-old you know, guy usually buying a ridiculous sports car, dressing like he's way younger than he is, that whole thing, uh, and it's awkward to be around him because you're like, dude, really? Um, and so he's just struggling to deal with the reality that he's fully like middle age now, right? Uh, quarter life crisis is similar, except you probably don't have enough money yet to buy a car, like a sports car like that. Um, and so what we're hearing is that young people are having, on the whole, a harder and harder time fully becoming adults. Uh, and we see this even down to like youth, right? Down to like high school, college age students are struggling to kind of fully live into the reality that they're not kids anymore out of high school. 
And there's this like prolonged um, adolescence that people talk about. Um, And so people are having a harder and harder time fully becoming adults kind of as historically as we've thought of adults. Uh, So they created a new category a while back called emerging adults, which I don't know what that means. Um, But the legitimacy of all those ideas is a whole other thing for another day. But I think if we drill down to the bottom of those kind of sociological issues, what we find is that the question of who am I is the deep question that all of those people are asking. They're trying to figure out who am I, why am I here, which is just another version of that. And so I think it's a question that we all struggle with as well as, as people. And so since the fall of humanity, if you don't know your Bible, in the very beginning, God created us good, and we chose to rebel against that in the Garden of Eden. And since then, we have struggled with this idea of identity because we were not made to be in tension with God and one another. And yet, that's what we find ourselves in. The, the fall of humanity, when sin entered, brought, uh, brought tension, brought um, division between us and God and us and creation and one another. But we were made to be in fellowship with one another and in fellowship with God. That's what you were made for. Man, I hear that mic too. I'll switch to the handheld if it keeps doing that. I don't know why it's doing that. Welcome back to me. Um, But we were made to be in fellowship with God and one another, and yet sin has shattered that uh, and shattered our identity as God's children. I think we've been searching for that answer ever since. I want to hit you with a couple of quotes Uh, Because you know and I know we're not really doing very well at finding that answer. We're searching all over the place, uh, and we're coming up with a lot of answers to that question that are actually pretty damaging to us. Uh, This is from an article in Psychology Today a a while ago uh, by a professor at the University of Texas at Austin. He said this, We may be making up stuff about ourselves that really isn't true. Now, nobody elbow anybody next to you when I'm reading this, okay? We may be making stuff up about ourselves that really isn't true. For example, our brain may make up reasons for why we decided to marry the person we married or didn't, or why we chose a particular product over another. Indeed, a plethora of findings in decision-making suggests that we are routinely blind to the true detriments of our judgments and decisions. A notion that is often repeated in the work of behavioral economists Further, and this is why the mind is particularly ill-suited for figuring out the self, even if the stories we tell ourselves about who we are and why we did what we did are sometimes true, and listen to this, we are unable to discern whether our self-told stories are true or fabricated. So we're trying to answer the question, who am I, and we can't really even trust ourselves with the answers. So the article then goes on to, to ask, how do then you figure it out? And this is the first part of the answer. Now, remember, this is a psychology professor. He says, given these themes, I am personally pessimistic that the mind can be used to figure out the answer to who am I. To me, a particularly alluring alternative is that of going beyond the mind. Almost all spiritual traditions involve a practice of silence that encourages exploring the space of no thought. The idea is to switch off the mind such that you can get to know what reality as it really is. That is, perceiving reality without the filter of the mind. Now, that's pretty interesting. And I, I love when the secular world sort of discovers a truth that God has been kind of guiding us toward all along. So this PhD psychologist said that we're unable within ourselves 
to find out the answer to maybe the most important question that we have. And what he just said is what the Bible has been saying for centuries, which is, you can't fix you. You need something or someone outside of you to rescue you. And then this psychologist goes on to say that a particularly alluring, right, an interestingly attractive alternative is what? Well, he uses different words, but in, in the Christian spirituality world, we would call it silence and solitude or meditation, right? Again, what do we see in our Bibles? Our Bibles is full of instructions to spend time communing, praying with God, to meditate on his word day and night. Jesus himself, if you're like, I don't need to spend time alone with God, Jesus himself, who was God in the flesh, went off by himself often to meditate and to pray. So if you're struggling to figure out who you are, my invitation to you is to get out of your own head and look to Jesus. This is why the scriptures tell us, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, to hide the word of God in your heart. You won't be able to find the answers to your feelings, your inner lostness or your feelings of aloneness inside of yourself. You were not designed that way. You need someone outside of you to give you a new identity. You need to know that who you are is wrapped up in belonging to Jesus, in belonging to God. So run to him. Spend time pursuing a relationship with him. Your identity, this is what I hopefully you'll get from today. Your identity will not be satisfying ultimately until your identity is caught up in life with Jesus. Now, our text from 1 Peter today is a huge help for us to answer this question of who am I? So just a little bit of context. Peter is writing, the Apostle Peter, he's writing this letter to Christians, uh, the church that was scattered about what is, a, what is roughly modern-day Turkey. That's who he's writing to, Christians around that part of the world. They've been scattered there by persecution in the Roman world. And so Peter's writing to a people who are probably struggling with this question, right? They're literally immigrants to another place by force. So they're probably dealing with, who, who am I now? What, what's my identity in this new place that I'm in that I didn't come from? Who are we? And so I wonder, have you ever been through something particularly difficult in your world and you find yourself laying awake at night wondering, what in the world is going on with my life? Who am I now? What do I do with all of this angst? You lay there and wonder, why is this happening? What's going on? And if you ask these questions long enough, I think the bottom of those is this who am I question in the world. And so this seems to be a theme in this letter from Peter to the church. He wants to help them and us understand our identity. He wants us to understand who we are so that we can be encouraged and built up so that we can live the right way. As one famous author said, how then should we live? So it's always identity that leads to action. So many of us get this backwards, right? We think it's action that's going to earn us an identity, and it just doesn't work that way. It can never work that way with God, or the gospel isn't true, and Jesus died for nothing. It's your identity in him that leads to the action. So verses 9 and 10, we have like identity and action mashed together like a sandwich. Look at verses 9 and 10 in 1 Peter 2. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, identity, here comes action, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness 
into his marvelous light. Here's some more identity. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So the first thing we see is an indication that Peter is contrasting this identity that he just talked about with the identity of those who don't believe in Jesus in the previous verse, verse 8, which is why it didn't make sense to read it with verse 9 quite. So look back at verse 8. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, is contrasting the stumbling, disobedient identity of those who do not believe in Jesus with the identity that he's about to lay out in verse 9. And if you're hearing that and you're like, I'm not a believer, are you saying that I'm stumbling and disobedient? I am, but what I'm also wanting to remind us is that everybody else who has ever followed Jesus had that same identity too. So welcome to the club, right? Remember, he's writing this to Christians, so when you hear these words, you're hearing them, church, as a recipient of these words. So we want to dig into this and look at the action that's kind of nestled right inside of the identity. So the first picture of identity that Peter is using, he's using like word pictures here, is an interesting one because it has corporate and individual implications. A race, or uh, I think the word is ethnos here, an ethnicity of people get their identity as a whole from the fact that they belong to a larger group, right? That's what a race of people is. And yet each person who is in that race of people is also an individual who gives meaning to that race. So it's a kind of a circular thing. A race of people is a group that is identifiable by what the individual is. So Peter is showing us here that, yes, although we as individuals who have our own relationships with God and our own understanding of God in terms of how we relate to him, we are not alone. Christianity is not a lone ranger religion. Um, This week, a friend of mine sent a picture from his Facebook of someone who said, and this, I found this to be like kind of absurd. They said, I'm visiting a different church every day for a year and giving you a review. I was like, now my friend got a great review. So I was like, man, good for you. You got a good, great sermon was great. People were friendly. Like that's what they said about his church. But I was like, how absurd it is to do that. That's not even close to what church is. And also, who are you to think you can give reviews on God's people? It's crazy. Because we are not meant to be doing Christianity alone like that. And so we're part of, in this word picture, a race. But not a race made up of physical attributes, right? Look around this room. We are all from different races in here. And that's the beauty of it. What kind of race are we? What's the identity, the meaning of the essence of our identity as a group? He says we are a chosen race. So that's the essence of our identity as a group. And it's not based on our actions or abilities, but on the fact that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God saved us. So when those of us who believe in Jesus ask ourselves, who am I? One of the ways we answer that is that we have been chosen by God. Meaning, I didn't do anything to earn that. I didn't do anything to act right. I didn't do anything to make myself more lovable by God. No, God just, it's kind of a mystery as to why he did this, but he chose to put his affections on me and love me. And I know that I am his. So the next part of our identity then that I want to draw your attention to is in verse 10. He says, once you had not received mercy... 
but now you have received mercy. So here's another way to state it. I'm going to read you some lyrics from a song that I really love. It's by a band named Citizens. The song is called Kids of Grace. And here's the line that I love. There's nothing better than to know we belong. We've been adopted by the Father of love. Our brother, meaning Jesus, suffered on the cross in our place. We are kids of grace. And I want want you to hear that line, right? You aren't just a chosen people because God needed some people and he kind of is annoyed with you, but he puts up with you anyway. No, that's not your identity in Jesus. You are God because he saw you in your distress, in your brokenness, and he was moved by mercy. God felt the emotion of compassion towards you and initiated love with you, right? And I mean corporate you, like all of us in this room, right, or who are hearing my voice, but also I mean individually you. Like you with that secret sin that you're dealing with right now that just popped in your head because I'm saying that, that you, that God is moving towards he sees all the junk in our hearts and in our minds and that and apart from him we are stumbling around disobeying him and what is he moved by mercy towards you mercy towards you love towards you so when you come to know and love jesus you go from being not a recipient of that mercy to being a recipient of that mercy do you want to taste the mercy of god there's one step involved receive it that's it The only thing between you and the mercy of God is your submitting to it. That's it. That's all you have to do. Be a recipient of God's unending, never failing, life transforming mercy. You believe in that mercy and you receive it, right? You don't come to church and act the right way and get mercy. No, you come to church because you've received mercy and this is who you are now. So many of us like to play these games with God as if he, like, people do this all the time when they find out I'm a pastor. They start changing their language around me. Like, oh, sorry, pastor, I didn't mean to cuss in front of you. Like, God doesn't hear when you're away from me. And as if me, my presence is somehow like the moral police for you. That's not what this is about. I talk to parents about this sometimes, too, those of us who have young kids. It's like, don't have your kids behave a certain way in the church building and then a different way when they're outside of here because that's the quickest way to have them abandon their faith. They can tell we're playing games. And that's not what this is. We have received mercy. Are our kids a little wild in here sometimes? Oh, my gosh, yes, my little one. You guys who are a little bit new, you haven't seen her in full effect yet. But I'll be up on this platform doing all this stuff in my head, going, I, I should stop her from doing that. It's going to be offensive to people. And, and, and I get it. We want to teach manners and all of that. But I don't want to ever teach them that when they walk into this building, God is like extra watching them, so you better behave. No, God is, wants you to receive mercy by grace alone through faith alone. Now, two times in this text we see Peter explain that we are possessed by God. I want you to notice that. Once he says it in the, verse, in the middle of verse 9 and once at the end of verse 10, he calls us, quote, a people for his own possession. And then he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Now, if we aren't careful with this text, we can read this and think, I don't want anyone to like own me. I'm my own boss, right? To which I would ask, how's that going for you, Right? The reality is we are terrible at being the king of our own life. 
We are not good at running our lives. Anybody in here ever made a bad judgment? Don't raise your hand because it's yes. If you've ever made a bad decision with your money, your time, your relationships, right? We're not good at being the owners of our lives. But the other side of this idea is that God is not a slave driver who demands bad things from us. That's the essence of what makes slavery so wrong. It's dehumanizing because the slave owner demands that you do things that are bad for you, which is why we are against that. Being a possession of God, though, is the most free you could actually be. I'm now a slave to righteousness, which is as free as I could possibly be. The reality is that as the creator of everything that is, as the creed would say a few, a few weeks back that we studied everything that is seen and unseen, God already owns everything, including you. He's the creator of it all. Jesus told this parable of a man who was hoarding possessions away so much that he had to like tear down his storage shed and build new big ones. And on that day, God said, you know what? I'm going to take the life that I gave to you. Today, your life is required of you. God owns everything, so what does this mean that we're his possession? It means that all of the things that God has, that of all the things that God has in the universe, the Bible says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That's a metaphor for saying he owns everything that there is. He's rich. He has chosen to make his people his treasure. He could make treasure his treasure, but he has chosen to make his people, and hear me, you and me, his treasure. Deuteronomy 32 tells us that God's chosen portion is his people. His, the apple of his eye, the thing he loves the most, is his people. Theologian Abraham Kuyper said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. So when we ask, Who am I? If we know and we love Jesus, part of the answer is, I am what God has chosen to set his love on. That's who I am. I am loved by God. That is my identity. We are God's people. We are what God gets excited about. Out of all the things that he owns, which is everything that's ever existed and could have existed, what he is interested in is your heart and relationship with you. God wants to make you his. Now, when God does make you his, he also gives you his nature, which is amazing. And that nature is holiness. It's holiness, right? It's easy to talk about love in the modern church, but not all of us want to talk about holiness. But holiness is actually freedom. God has made you holy. He has set you apart for himself, when we trust in Jesus, we become partakers of God's character. We share in his holiness. This is why the New Testament, uh, in the New Testament, many of the epistles begin with words like this, to the saints, right? It's like there's this template that Paul uses pretty often. Dear saints in the church, Paul is, I'm writing to you, the Apostle Paul writing to you, Timothy says hi, uh, why are you so screwed up? That's like the, his template. This is why, though, he starts with not you bunch of loser sinners. He starts with to the saints, because that's who you are. You are no longer, verse 8, a disobedient, stumbling soul looking to yourself for answers. That's not who you are anymore. Instead, you're a holy saint who is learning by the grace of Jesus to become what God has said that you are in him. So when you sin as a child of God, you are acting 
um, out of character with who you actually are now. This is why, if you remember, when Paul confronted Peter, what did he say to him? You are out of step with the gospel. You are out of step with who you actually are now. This is not you. God wants for us not only what we uh, call positional holiness, meaning that he has placed you in a place that is, you are holy. That's how God sees you when you come to Jesus. So he doesn't just want positional holiness for you. He wants you to actually be holy. And I've said this before, but maybe you know a person who has a few years under their belt and they've been walking with Jesus for a long time and you've, you know what it's like to walk with near somebody who's holy, like actually holy. And they're not judgmental and jerks about it because that's not holiness. They're some of the most kind, peaceful, easygoing people that I've ever been around and they love Jesus and they walk with him and they live their life as a holy life. Now I want to, uh, I intentionally left the last part for this text uh, because it might be tricky for us to understand a little bit uh, and because in this one we see a link between identity and purpose. There is no doubt that identity and purpose are inextricably linked, right? Those two things go together. But this title of royal priest here brings these two ideas to bear on to one another. Now, we have a tendency in the church to slip into what I refer to as like Old Testament priest mode on each other. It happens to me a lot, but it happens to like a lot of us in the church, right? The example I used earlier, we think we come in this room and now we're like in God's presence. There's a sense in which that's true when we're gathered, but this is just a room. This isn't like a holy place. Here's an example I've come across a lot of times in my years leading music in the church. How many of you have ever thought to yourself, and you can admit it, um, or heard somebody say that the, the purpose of the singing, like the worship team, their job is to bring us into God's presence. I've heard that language so many times. I was raised in, a, in kind of a way to think that was true. In one sense, I get it, but I honestly think we're not really thinking through what we're saying when we say things like that. One of the things we believe that's central to our identity as Christians in the stream of Christianity that we are in is the idea that there is no longer any human mediator between God and us. You don't need me to get to God. You really don't. And those of you that know me well are like, amen, sure, we sure don't, right? No band who leads us in music has the power to take you before God. They're just leading music. What takes you before God is that we're in community with one another and that God is present with us. No pastor who stands up here on this little platform or any other platform has any power to lead you into God's presence. They don't have that power. The scriptures are crystal clear. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. So what this text means for us calling us a royal priesthood is that you have access to God at all times. There's a Latin phrase, quorum Deo. It means we live our life in the face of God. That everything you do is right in front of God's face. There's no hiding from him. There's no off time from God's presence for those of us who believe. This building doesn't contain God's presence. God's presence is with his people. So these different aspects in this text cover the question of identity. And if you find yourself asking the question, who am I as a follower of Jesus? My invitation to you is to come back to this text. Remind yourself that you are a holy, royal priest who belongs to God, who is a recipient of his mercy. That's who you are as a Christian. But then what's your purpose? End of verse 9. 
All of that is so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And all week this week, I've been humming that song that was pretty popular back in the day. All of you who know it, know it, right? Uh, but this is our singular purpose as the people of God. God has chosen to, to love us when we were yet sinners because of his great mercy. And he's made us into a holy people who are ever in his presence. He's redeemed our identity. But listen to me, he has also redeemed every aspect of the work that you do in your lives. There is nothing in your life that doesn't have eternal consequence and value to God. In the creation of the world in the garden, God gave Adam and Eve a job. He gave them a mandate. He gave them work to do before sin entered. Now that work became toil. The language changes. And now that he's called us back to himself out of the darkness we were walking in, he has given us a work to do as well. Our work is what? To proclaim his excellencies in word and in deed, to proclaim with our words and our hands equally the goodness of his excellencies, to proclaim to anyone who will hear and see the excellencies of the God who took us from being stumbling, confused, exiled outsiders, and made us into a people for his own possession. And so that's what I'm trying to do now by using this microphone and this platform, right? The microphone that's kind of not all the way working all the way. I don't understand. But hear me, I want you to hear this, right? Because we fall into this trap all the time and it was so big when I was a kid in church. The, the, the only real way, I mean, we're not gonna say it out loud, but we, we all know the real ways you serve God is by being a missionary or maybe a pastor. And those two things are good, right things, right? This is not the only, and I would even go so far to say it's not the primary way that the people of God as a whole proclaim the excellencies of him. When you Pray with your coworker and care about them. You are proclaiming his excellencies. When you see your career as not just a path for enriching yourself, but as a vehicle by which you can bless the world and bring God's kingdom to bear here, you are proclaiming his excellencies. When you understand that your body is not simply a pleasure factory, but is instead a temple meant to glorify God in every way. You proclaim his excellencies. When you love your spouse, those of you that are married, in a sacrificial way that the world sees as foolishness, you are proclaiming his excellencies. When you faithfully raise your children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, and let me just even break it down further because this is the stage of life I'm in. I was thinking about this this morning. When you do simple things in your world to serve other people, right? In my life, one of the things that I do in my family is cook. And when I was thinking about this this morning, what the Holy Spirit, the Lord, whatever you want to say, just impressed upon me. You know, when you give effort to give your babies some good food that they enjoy that's nutritious for them, that's part of how I proclaim his excellencies to my kids, why? Because when they ask me, why do you do this? My little two-year-old asked me today while I was changing her diaper, Daddy, why are you changing my diaper? Why? Well, you stink. But also, <laughs> because I want you to know what a gracious father who loves you looks like. Because it's a reflection back to my gracious father who loves me. So the question for us, uh, questions for us, does our life 
proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light, right? When we treat people who we very strongly disagree with, like people who have a soul and not like an argument to be won, we are proclaiming his excellencies. So do we, does our life do that, or does it look like we think that we're the excellent one? Does our life display to everyone around us God's holiness and mercy, or does it display our condemnation of those who, you, who we see as worse than ourselves? Absolute foolishness if that's us, right? So I want to encourage you this week to meditate on this text. Begin to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you the ways in which he might be calling you to live more into the identity that he has given to you. So I want to do something a little different this morning. I'm going to invite you to stand. And just as a sign of the fact that we believe that all of us are equal partakers in this identity we have as a royal priesthood in Christ, I'm going to ask us to read this text together kind of as our benediction. Um, and as you read this text, I want you to listen closely to what God's presence looks and sounds like, right? Take that to heart. When you hear these words being read, this is what the sound of God's mercy and holiness sounds like in his people. God's presence in this world looks and sounds like us, like you. So let's read this over one another, and then we're going to take a few minutes. Our kids will return, and we will take communion together. I'm going to shut my mic off because my voice is the same as your voice. Let's read this together. 